Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning, church. How are we doing? Doing good? All right. We're going to do some Bible today. Not that we don't do it every Sunday, but uh, more Bible than usual. Um, we're going to get you through Old Testament, New Testament, lots of, lots of cross-references today because we're looking at a text that is very, um, it, it, is, it is consequential. It is very, it, it is the, the passing away of an old covenant reality, which is the Passover meal and the inauguration, the institution of a new covenant reality of the Lord's Supper. So, uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Michael, and I am the lead pastor here. We're going through a series in the Gospel of Luke, and we are in Luke 22, which is um, about the middle of Holy Week, where we are in this particular text. So, we're, we're going to start off on Wednesday and then slide into Thursday, and that is the day before Good Friday. So we're, we're, there's a lot of action, though, that happens in this chapter, and we'll be in this the next couple of weeks. Um, so today, as I mentioned, we're looking at the celebration of the final Passover, the final Passover meal, which is also the institution of a new, uh, a new reality, a Lord's Supper, also called communion or Eucharist. These are words that are, all describe the same thing. Um, Less than 24 hours from where we are today, Jesus will be crucified. Um, he will, in the meantime, he'll be arrested. He's going to be accused. He'll be put on trial, and Jesus will be condemned, though he was innocent of any crime. In fact, Jesus was perfect in every way. He never violated a single command of God. His heart, his, his soul, his mind was always perfectly in tune with the will of the Father. And yet, he was condemned as an innocent man by his own people, and he was crucified. So these two events that we're looking at um, now, the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper, one event, the crucifixion of Christ being another event, they're linked. And we'll see this morning how they're linked, and it's a, um, a beautiful but tragic picture at the same time. So we'll do a lot of, um, a lot of Bible referencing today. Um, so let's dig in, all right? Luke 22, let's dig in. And we're going to cover 23 verses today. Verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. A couple quick notes here. Satan entered into Judas. We're, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I just want to, just a note, being close to Jesus doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you're in his orbit and you follow him around, that doesn't make you a Christian. It wasn't the case whenever Jesus was here in his earthly ministry, and it's not the case today. Being a regular church member, church goer, that does not make you a Christian. We'll talk about what does make you a Christian, 
But it is possible for somebody who is an insider of insiders. He was one of the 12, Jesus' inner circle. It is possible to be there in that proximity and to never truly believe in Christ. Judas saw miracles. Jesus saw the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus walking on water. Jesus healing the blind and making the lame walk. Judas saw all these things happen, and he did not believe in Jesus. So he, was, he, he enjoyed being close to the power but he wanted that power for himself. And so uh, John chapter 12 says that he was the treasurer of the disciples, meaning that he kept the money for all the disciples. And then John also adds that he liked that job because he was a thief and he would steal the money for himself while claiming that he wanted to care for the poor. So after three years of being with, Ju- uh, with Jesus, Judas hardened his heart toward Christ. And he deadened his conscience toward Christ. And in so doing, he allowed himself to be manipulated by Satan and even possessed. I don't know exactly all the particular details of that. But Satan entered into Judas. This is a significant thing. And now Satan has a man in the inner circle. So just let this be a cautionary tale, especially as we go through our text today, that Being here at church and being amongst other Christians and singing the songs and going through the rituals and the routines, that doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is an inner reality of the heart. It is a commitment to Jesus Christ of confessing your sin, repentance, and faith in Jesus Christ through through whom your life changes. He, He indwells you by his spirit through faith, and he changes you from the inside out. That's what a Christian is, but just being here doesn't make you a Christian. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Pause here. Um, We don't know if this was a miraculous thing or if it was if Jesus had made preparations in advance with someone, we don't know. What we do know is that Peter and John went ahead and they made preparations for the Passover. And it, was, it wasn't um, just grab some uh, paper plates and napkins and forks and uh, we'll sit around, you know, eat out of, you know, eat, eat, eat in a circle and drink out of solo cups or something. It's like there were preparations that needed to be made, ritualistic preparations, so it was important that it was done right. So what's the, let's talk about the Passover because that's, that is very crucial for our text today. The Passover is a remembrance, it's a feast, a meal that God's people would share together, and they've been doing it ever since the time of the Exodus, at least that's when they were commanded to do it. So the Passover was originally instituted um, during the time of the Exodus, and it was um, one of the most, if not the most important holy day in the Jewish calendar. But it commemorated God delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. Pharaoh was like a king in Egypt. They called him Pharaoh. And so it was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the feast itself would last a week. But the first day of the feast, 
was called the Passover. And on this day, you would have a lamb sacrificed. And there were particular ritual things they needed to do to do this properly. But the Passover meal was on the first day of this week-long feast when the Passover lamb was uh, sacrificed. And so through this ordered ritual, every part had meaning. Each element of the meal was designed to remind them of the story of the Exodus. And of course, uh, in Jesus' day, the Exodus had happened, some say, roughly 1,500 years before. So this had been happening, or at least was known that it was supposed to happen for 1,500 years. So they would, they would do these little things throughout the meal. And there was a point at, towards the end of the meal when somebody was designated to say a line. It's like you're supposed to say particular words. Usually it was the youngest son. The youngest son would say, why is this night different from other nights? And then someone, probably the father of the home, would tell the Exodus story. And it would remind them the reason why we do it this way and that way and all these things happen is because of what God did. It'd be kind of like going to Thanksgiving meal and somebody telling, well, here's the pilgrims. And, you know, they, you know, they met some folks and they had a cell. It's like telling the story of why this holiday is important. That's, that was their ritual. And they were told, they were commanded to do this. So the story is about God making a covenant with his people. And the covenant reference here is the, is the covenant that God made with Moses. Um, this is after God brought them out from um, Egypt. God made a covenant with them on Sinai. So it's a reference to this covenant that God had made. So the way that the story goes is that Pharaoh had enslaved all of these people in Egypt. They were living there but uh, as guests in Egypt, but Pharaoh turned those guests into slaves. So God raised up a deliverer, Moses. And um, Moses represented his people to Pharaoh, and God used Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. But Pharaoh refused to let the people go. And so for this reason, God judged Pharaoh, and God judged the whole nation by extension, by sending plagues upon the people. And there was a succession of plagues. There were 10 of them in total. The first nine, every time Pharaoh, uh, he would not uh, let the people go. He refused. And so it got down to the final plague, the 10th plague, and this was the decisive plague. God warned Pharaoh, if you do not let my people go, I will kill, I will strike down every firstborn male in Egypt. So uh, Pharaoh still refused, and then God uh, carried out what he said he would do. And so as God was about to strike down all the firstborn males in Egypt, he was going to spare his own people who were also living in Egypt at the time, and God wasn't going to strike down the firstborn males of his own people. But there was a way that God designated his people uh, and distinguished them from the Egyptians. And you, some of you, you, pr- you probably know the story. The way God did that was he required every house to slaughter a lamb. And they would take some blood from that slaughtered lamb and paint the blood over their doorpost. Um, And that would indicate this house is covered by this, this blood from this lamb. And so whenever God's judgment did come upon the land of Egypt... And God would pass through the streets and uh, the angel of the Lord was, was striking children dead, these, uh, these firstborn sons. 
when God came to the house, the angel of the Lord came to a house that had the blood on the doorposts, he would pass over that house. And hence they call it the Passover meal because they're celebrating God spared us, God was merciful to us, and God uh, delivered us out of this horrific slavery that we were in. That's the Passover celebration. So the Passover signified two things. One, forgiveness of sin. God's people, they were also sinful. I mean, they were not innocent people, but God's mercy was upon them as his covenant people that he had chosen. So forgiveness of sin and deliverance of judgment, that requires death. So uh, the, the, the blood was a sign of forgiveness that even though God's people were also sinful, like the Egyptians, God forgave them. A couple of scriptures about this. Hebrews 9, 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So this line here, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So God is indicating something here. Blood is a requirement for forgiveness because well, we'll have to save the, all the because for another sermon, but that is what God, that is what God requires. Um, you, you may know this, this text is a little more familiar. For the wages of sin is death. So wage is something you earn. So everybody who sins, which is everybody who has ever existed except for the Lord Jesus Christ, everybody is a sinner. Everybody is sinful, um, even as a child, as an infant, everyone sins. And the wages of that sin is death. We're under a spiritual death penalty because we have rejected the author of life. We've rebelled against life itself. And so we're, we're receiving in ourselves the penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what the rest of the sermon is about. So the first point, the, the first thing that Passover signified was forgiveness of sin. The second thing was that God may provide a substitute to die in your place. That's what the lamb represented. So in Egypt, they died for their own sin. God judged the people, and they died in their own sin. God's people, he allowed an animal to stand in as a substitute, a lamb, and it had to be a spotless lamb, a perfect lamb, that would represent that this is a pure animal. This animal uh, would represent sinlessness. This animal would be perfect. And so the substitute could die in their place. So God instructed them for this Passover meal to prepare the lamb and to do it with unleavened bread. And the reason for that is unleavened, it takes time to leaven bread for it to rise. Unleavened bread, you can cook it very quickly. Because when, God final, when Pharaoh finally released them, they're going to need to get out of town in a hurry. So they're eating the Passover meal, and they've got their, their tunic on, and their belt you know, strapped, and they're, they've, they're, they're not taking time for bread to leaven. They're eating this meal, and they're, getting, they're eating a great big meal dressed like they're getting ready to head out of town on a trip. And whenever God releases them, they're going, to, they're going to leave, and they're going to leave in a hurry. So it needs to be something that is done with haste. So once uh, God had spared all of his people who had the blood on the door, then Pharaoh saw the deaths of all the firstborn. He finally allowed people, the people to leave, 
And then God's people had eaten a big meal. They packed up their things and they set out uh, right away from Egypt. And so forgiveness by this blood of a lamb was a symbol. You know, you might have thought when I said that a moment ago, if you're really thinking about it, it's kind of weird to say an animal can die in the place of a human being, much less one animal for a whole house full of people. That sounds, that seems kind of strange because of what value are humans and how can an animal provide life for a whole house full of people? Well, the, the reason for that is that the lamb did not actually atone for their sin. The lamb was a symbol. The lamb represented something. And what, that, what the animal represented was a substitute that was yet to come. The substitute that God would someday provide, this was a prophetic promise, an anticipation of the true and ultimate substitute, the true and ultimate lamb that was to come. They didn't know that at this time, but God did, and God preserved it in his word for us. So no animal can truly substitute and atone for the sins of a human being. Only a man could be a fitting substitute. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says this, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You could, you know, lambs also would be included in this. So bulls and goats, you can't sacrifice, there are not enough animals on this planet that could be ritually sacrificed to atone for the sin of a single human being. Because our worth is inestimable to God. We are created in his image. And as people who are created in his image, there is no animal that can truly, um, can truly atone for our, for our sin and our, our rebellion against God. John 1.29, this is in the New Testament, John the Baptist speaking. The next day, John, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So over here, animals, it's impossible, right? And animals cannot take away sin. But here, um, we see the man coming towards him, uh, Jesus He is the Lamb of God, and it is possible because he is the true Son of God. He is the perfect human being, and he has never sinned. So he is the the perfect representation of what humanity is. So the Passover Lamb was only a symbol. The true substance is Jesus Christ. And so all the lambs that were sacrificed in the Passover ritual, all of them were like an arrow, pointing straight toward Jesus Christ, who fulfills what that, uh, what that lamb anticipated. Continuing on. When the hour came, the hour for Jesus to have the Passover with his disciples, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
the meaning of the original Passover in Egypt is about to be fulfilled in the suffering of Christ. So Jesus said, I really have earnestly desired. That is, uh, it, it's, an, it's a multiplication of the word desire. It's like desiring I have desired. You know, if you want to intensify something in, in Greek, you just, you could repeat a word. Desiring I have desired. I've earnestly desired. I've been eager with anticipation to share this Passover meal with you, this Passover meal, before I suffer. Because this will be the final Passover. This will be the last true Passover that will, that will ever, ever be celebrated. And the suffering, he's referencing what he was about to undergo. He is about to become the Passover lamb, the true fullness of what the Passover lamb represented. The next time Jesus will share this meal um, with, with his people will be in heaven. Revelation 19, it's called the marriage supper of the lamb. So it is the fulfillment, the eschatological, if you want a fancy theology word, the eschatological final end, end times fulfillment of what the Passover represented. So verse 19, um, the, the, he, he, he talked about giving thanks. The, the word for give thanks is Eucharisto, and that, that's where we get the word Eucharist. So whenever... Um, Whenever people refer to the Eucharist, they're talking about giving thanks because this is a meal that was given, um, that was eaten with thanks. And so it says here, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. So the bread is the body of Christ. And he says, it is given for you. So if you, if you think you have one loaf of bread... You know, if I want to share a loaf of bread with somebody else, I would have to divide it. And so the breaking of the bread is a way for Jesus to take one loaf and to distribute it, saying, there's one body, there's one true Messiah, there's, there's one Savior, but this one Savior, his body, symbolized by this bread, it can be broken and distributed to feed many. And of course, we know that Jesus can feed 5,000 with, with some uh, bread and a couple of fish. So he's able to feed a multitude from one body. And that is true also in the Eucharist, in the, the breaking of his own body. So we have a breaking symbolizing just dividing bread, cutting it into smaller pieces, but also a breaking of his body, symbolically referring to how his body would be broken when he was crucified on the cross. So he said, this is my body, referring to the bread. The traditional Catholic way of understanding this is to say this, referring to Jesus is doing like a mathematical equation. You have bread on one side, you have body on the other side, and then an equal sign. This is my body. And so they, the, the doctrine that they teach is called transubstantiation. So... You know, if you go to a Catholic mass, um, what they believe is happening is that literally the, the wafer and the, the wine that is, as it touches your lips, after the, the priest blesses it, it transforms, tra the substance uh, it is, is changed to become literally the physical body of Jesus and the physical blood of Jesus. That is absurd. It is, even after... This happens, Jesus still refers to it as bread and wine. 
But uh, some of you from a Catholic background, that might be um, what you've heard and what you've taught. That is not a correct interpretation of Scripture. Whenever Jesus says, this is my body, he does not, he's not saying it literally. Because in other places, Jesus said, I am the vine. <laughs> Jesus did not turn into a plant. <laughs> uh, he also said, I am the door, or I am a door. He also said, I am the light of the world. Jesus is able to use the exact same language to represent figurative or symbolic things. And that's what he's doing here. This is my body is a, is a symbol so um, it, it represents, the bread represents a physical body, but in a, in a symbolic way. And then he says, it is, which is given. So his body is a gift. It is, it is a donation. It is something that, that is given for our benefit, given for you. That indicates what you would call the vicarious nature of the sacrificial death of Jesus. Um, theologians would call this substitutionary atonement. The atonement meaning the, 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 the fact of our forgiveness. The means of that forgiveness is through a substitute. So they call it substitutionary atonement. So Jesus' death wasn't merely as a martyr. There's some liberal scholars, they'll say, well, he was, a, he was a martyr. You know, poor fella, he was a good guy, and they just killed him, cut down before his time. Uh, other people would say, well, no, he's, a, he's, a, he's an example of really following through with your commitments, you know, never backing down. You know? But, but the, the fact of Jesus dying as a substitute to, uh, uh, to appease the wrath of God, they're like, well, that's horrible. They, they would reject that completely. And yet, this is what we see taught in so many places in Scripture, and I'll show you some of that as we go along here. But Jesus died in our place because his body was broken and it was given for you. He's talking to his disciples, but by extension to all of his followers through all time. Given for you. This is, he did this for your sake. And he did it as a substitute, just as the lamb did, the Passover lamb. So if you are in Christ, if you believe in Jesus as your Savior and you've committed your life to him sincerely and truly, whenever God's wrath visits the earth, whenever Christ returns in the last time, the, 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 the wrath of God that should be on you because of your sin, which we've all committed sin, am I right? Amen? Yes, we all have. But God's wrath will pass over you. Why? Because his wrath was visited upon his son and it passes over us. So he is our Passover lamb. So through faith in Jesus, the wrath of God is satisfied. His justice against his righteous justice and anger against human sin is satisfied because Jesus Christ absorbed that in his own body. His body was broken for you, for our sake. Well, this was written about vividly, vividly, 700 years before the time of Christ by one of God's prophets by the name of Isaiah. I want to read to you. Um, we're doing Easter in July, uh, or at least Good Friday in July. We'll get to Easter in a couple weeks. Um, Good Friday in July. But this is um, a text from Isaiah. Just listen to, this. The, we, we as Christians interpret, this is, the, Jews would say this is a messianic prophecy. They say this is about the Messiah. They just don't think that, it means what we say it means. But as Christians, we see this and we know exactly what it means, don't we? He, this is the Messiah, he was pierced for our 
transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's you, that's me. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled against God. We're all treasonous. We're all anarchists against the most high God, the king of the universe, the creator and sovereign Lord. We've all sinned and rebelled against him. We've all turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Whenever Jesus is hanging on the cross, tortured, crucified, it's for our sin. It's for our iniquity. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Skip to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That may be hard to swallow. I get that. To think that it was God's will to crush his son. Um, and I'm not going to, we don't have time to get into that. I just want to acknowledge that for some of you, that may be a very difficult thing to believe, but this is God's mercy and God's justice clashing, intersecting, and being perfectly fulfilled. Because if God did not punish our sin, then he would be an unjust God. And if God did not find some way to lay on someone else the, the penalty for our sin, if he just forgave us without any kind of uh, means of doing so, then he would not be just. So his mercy required this. Difficult as it is, his mercy required it. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, that's our guilt, he shall see his offspring, will become his children. He shall prolong his days, Christ will reign forever. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, he will reign. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, this is Jesus, the Messiah, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. He is our substitute. He is in our place. He stood in our place. He stood condemned. One more verse. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He was crucified between two thieves. Yet he bore the sin of many. How many? It's in the billions. Maybe in the trillions before, before it's all said and done. But the Lord, the death of one man, one loaf of bread can be multiplied to feed billions upon billions, if not trillions. He feed more people at McDonald's. It makes intercession for the transgressors. This is what our Messiah did for us. That was um, the, the body, the bread. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. 
for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So we've talked about the bread. He says some other things about the cup. This cup, so again, he's talking about the cup that is symbolized by uh, by the, the wine, which represents his blood. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What does that mean? Same as before, the cup is a symbol of the blood of Christ shed on the cross. And whenever we see in the Bible an image of a cup being poured out, usually, um, maybe every time, but I, I know usually this means it is, it is the wrath of God that is being poured out in some way. So this cup being poured out, you see this in Revelation. If you read through the book of Revelation, you'll see the seven bowls of God's wrath, that sort of thing. The imagery of a cup or a bowl being poured out is a cup of wrath. God is pouring out wrath. And so the image used here is that God's wrath against sin is being poured out not on us, but upon his son. Upon Jesus, the, 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 the cup of wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ. And now there's two elements here that I want to I draw our attention to. The new covenant and the blood. The new covenant and the blood. So the, he's saying that there's going to be a new covenant. And that new covenant will be ratified with blood. But this blood will be the blood of Christ. Where's this coming from? What's going on here? The old covenant which is the covenant that is referred to, that's the covenant of Moses. This is uh, God uh, is ratified at Mount Sinai. Ten commandments, all that stuff. The old covenant was made with Moses after the Exodus, after God had brought his people out of uh, Egypt. And that covenant was ratified with the blood of a lamb. We see this in Exodus 24, verse 8. So this, this here, this is, uh, just a, this is all happening up on Mount Sinai, right after God had given the Ten Commandments, okay? Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, so there's blood, there's covenant, that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the old covenant was ratified with blood, and that blood was the blood of a lamb. Jesus is saying that there's a new covenant So the new covenant is going to replace the old covenant, and the new covenant will be ratified not with the blood of a lamb lamb, a a baba sheep lamb, but with the lamb of God, the true lamb of God, which is himself. And so he says, um, this poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It is his blood that will ratify this new covenant. Okay. Okay. This, uh, what he's referring to here, the, the new covenant, was prophesied in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31. I've been scrolling around too much. I lost my, here we go. Jeremiah 31. Now listen to, this. so this uh, was five or six hundred years before the time of Christ. So we're still Old Testament, and he's prophesying, hey, there's, you all know the old covenant. Well, there's a new covenant coming. Let me tell you about the new covenant. This is what Jeremiah is saying. Behold, the days are coming future tense, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There were, it was a divided house. He's going to reunite the houses. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on, a, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's what we've been talking about, Passover, right? My covenant that they broke, by the way. They didn't even keep that covenant. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them. The Old Testament law was written on a stone, a tablet, and God's people ignored it. And Jeremiah said, hey, there's going to come a day when I'm going to take that law of God, I'm going to write it on their heart. So they're going to desire obedience. They're going to want to follow me. And that's true of every Christian. Alex prayed earlier uh, for uh, the Lewis's child to hate her sin. That's what we do. That's what Christians do. His law is written on our heart to where we desire obedience. Not perfectly, but he changes us. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Different from the, the tablets of stone. And I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's what we get. We get the new covenant. We get the reality of the Spirit of God cleansing us of our sin and changing our desire from the inside out by writing His law onto our heart. If you're convicted of sin, if you want to change, if you want to see repentance and growth in Christ in your life, it is because the Spirit of God has changed you and He has written the law of God, the desire, the heart of God on your heart. He's knitted you together with Him. So the new covenant replaces the old covenant because someone greater than Moses is here, right? The Lamb of God, the true Passover Lamb is here. Someone who is better than Moses, somebody who is better than the Passover Lamb. He is spotless because he is God. He is perfect and sinless in every way. And it will be his body that is broken. And it will be his blood that is shed. And that for our atonement, for our forgiveness. And the new covenant reality is that we'll all know the Lord. Every, every person who's a Christian knows God. That's, your, that's our privilege. That's our birthright. We know God. We have a relationship with God because he's our father. That's the new covenant. And so Jesus here at this meal, he's inaugurating this covenant. He's saying, this is the reality. Here's the thing that I'm bringing to pass. And it's being brought to pass by my suffering and my blood, my, by my broken body. And by that, you'll have forgiveness. We skipped over this earlier, and I want to come back to it now. This is verse 19. He said, do this in remembrance of me. This is the last thing we'll cover today. So do this. It has a, you know, an immediate reference point to, hey, this is what we're doing right now. But it has an idea of continuation, meaning you're going to keep doing this. You used to celebrate the Passover all the time which was a memorial about a dead animal and what God did through that, figuratively through that dead animal. But now, there's a new covenant reality. You're going to keep doing that, but it's not a Passover meal anymore. It's a supper. It's a Lord's Supper. It's a fellowship meal of God with His people. I'm, going to, I'm setting a table. I'm setting a feast before you. You're going to have some, some foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb that you get to eat 
continually. And at Christ the King Church, we do it every week. But we get to do this continually. And so he says, when you do this, do it this way. Do this in remembrance, not of Sinai, not of the law, not of that lamb, not of the Old Testament. The greater Sinai with a greater deliverance from a greater villain, which is our sin, and which is the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection. So do it in remembrance of me. We're now remembering Jesus Christ. We're remembering what he did. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, I want to show you this in a moment. It should be fairly familiar because we, uh, we read a portion of this every week. But Paul tells us how to do this. So he gives us instruction. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 29. Paul said, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So Paul's saying, I got this from Jesus and I'm passing it on to you now. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, we've been talking about that this whole time. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, Eucharisto, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. It is your sacrifice. It is a, it is a substitutionary atonement. His crucifixion is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, the Holy Spirit writing the law of God on your heart, that is ratified not with the blood of those lambs, but ratified in the blood of Jesus Christ. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we're doing this in remembrance of Jesus Christ and what he did. Now, going on a little bit further, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, which we do, and we'll do here in a little bit, you proclaim, it's, a, it's an announcement, it's a sermon. The, the, the communion is a sermon. We're, we're announcing something. When we come to the table, and whenever you put it in your mouth and you chew and swallow and you drink the cup, you're preaching a sermon to yourself, first and foremost, but to all of us together saying, we are sitting at the Lord's table dining with, with our Lord. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when he comes, it'll be the marriage supper of the Lamb, and all of eternity will be this kingly feast. Whoever, therefore... So now here's instruction about how to do it, and this is where we'll make it more practical. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. Paul says we should examine ourselves. That's, the, that's the, the requirement. Now, I think there's an initial examination that is for anybody. Before anybody for the first time takes communion, the church, we call it fencing the table, which means we, uh, Wade won't mention this, um, there's a restriction. He says, hey, for, if you don't know Jesus, this table is not for you. That means that he, if, 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 instead of coming to the table, we ask you, to consider the claims of Christ and your own sin and your need for him. He's doing what 1 Corinthians 11 tells us to do, which he's calling you to examine yourself so you don't come up here not knowing Christ and participating in a lie, acting as though you know Jesus when you don't. Examine yourself so that way when you come to the table, you know, yeah, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. He is my Savior, my Lord. I've been 
saved and purified. My sins are forgiven, and he's invited me to his table, and that's why I'm here. So you examine yourself. And so we, there are two things we remember. We remember the death and sacrifice of Christ, and we remember the sin that required it in the first place. You remember those two things, then you're doing communion properly. So we don't enter into communion lightly, but with soberness. We, we, we reflect for a moment. So anytime we, we take communion, you do those two things. So first you remember, apart from Christ, you were enslaved to sin. You were under God's wrath. You remember that we are no better than anybody else. Somebody out there on the street that doesn't know God from anybody, doesn't even believe in God, we're no better than them inherently. There's no good, righteous thing within us that merits our salvation. It is purely by the sheer grace of God that any of us are saved. And any one of us could be just as miserable as anybody else, just as sinful and wicked as anybody else. But it is by the grace of God that he has, he has set us apart. So we remember that we humble ourselves and we say, God, I, I need you. We confess our sin. We ask for his forgiveness knowing we have nothing to contribute. There's nothing special about us. There's nothing better about us. So we take a, a moment of self-examination. We confess our sin. We acknowledge our need. We take a little inventory. It doesn't have to take long. But it's good to just take a moment. I'm like, Lord, is there anything in my life that I have not acknowledged? Any sin that I've not confessed? Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you. That's a wonderful prayer and a scary prayer because when God answers it, you're going to see stuff. So ask God, Lord, is there anything that I haven't, have I dishonored you in any way? Have I offended you? Have I, what, show me my sin so that I can know what my need is. And then you respond accordingly with confession. Lord, I confess that is a sin. I repent. Help me to change. Perhaps you need to repent to somebody else because this is the fellowship meal with other people. But we want everybody to know. I want everybody here to know this is, what, this is what Christ has done for us and that if you don't know Christ even right now, this is what is being held out to you and offered to you. It is a chance to know your God and to have your sin forgiven and to be purified and to have a clean conscience. There's no sin beyond the reach of his grace. And this church welcomes anyone who does these things. Doesn't matter what your sin is, you're welcome here. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you want to follow the Lord here, you're welcome here. Um, if this is the prerequisite, that you believe in Jesus, you want to follow him, you want to repent of your sin. Remember that? And then we remember Jesus. Remember, do this in remembrance of me. So we remember Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless lamb who suffered and died in our place. We remember that it was the will of the Lord to crush him and not us. God did not crush you. God crushed his son. His son was tortured and died for our sake. And that is so easy to demonstrate from Scripture. Jesus suffered and died, was crushed, beaten, bloodied, mocked, spit upon, hung naked on a cross, tortured until he died of asphyxiation for you. And all because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, He's compassionate and tender as a father is with a young child. That's who our father is with us. And so the bread that we take, that is the body of Christ. It's broken for you.
And the cup that we drink, that is the blood of Christ that spilled, drenched the ground beneath the cross for you. And in that is a meal. We're fed. We're nourished. We're, we're, we're nourished, I don't know, 100 calories, 50 calories. <laughs> Here in this, it's not a snack, you know, it's like this is a spiritual meal. So we're what little bit of nourishment we get from the meal here. Of course, in the old times, it was a big, it was a big deal. Big, it's like a potluck, Providence. <laughs> Sorry, I've been trying to let that joke die uh, for your sake. But uh, it's a meal, but we're, we're nourished spiritually. This is, this is a, we're getting our calories, our spiritual calories when we come to the table. So this is a feast of grace, and whenever we come up here in a moment... Um, you know, Wade will go through the normal things that he goes through. But just remember, like, this is, this is a feast. A spiritual feast is being laid out before you. And if you could just picture, like, all kinds of side dishes and all the food. And we've already eaten. We've had our fill. And we're just enjoying, relaxed, sitting around. And then Wade says what he says. And that's what we're coming to. We're coming to, we're, we've been satisfied spiritually because we're coming to feast on the grace of God. So we bring to him our sin, our idolatry, our hatred, failures, weaknesses, our pride, our hard hearts. And by faith, we believe that all of those things were nailed to a Roman cross. And that in Christ we have life. We're resurrected with him. Our debt is paid in full because he paid it all. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all worship and praise. There's nothing we could do to fully uh, plumb the depths of what we've looked at here today is a beautiful picture of the gospel that you give us at this Passover meal. And thank you for the, the scriptures that speak so vividly of these truths. Lord, I pray for everyone here, one that will examine ourselves. For those that are Christians, Lord, help us to see our sin. Anything that we have, we have hidden, anything that we don't want to acknowledge, help us to see it so we can bring it before you, be forgiven, and we can repent. And for anyone who is not a believer, Lord, I pray that you will make that abundantly clear to them and break their heart, Lord, and captivate them by the beauty and the the mercy and majesty of God so that they can be washed clean. They can repent and follow Jesus by faith. And then, Lord, as we come to the table, help us to be fed and nourished spiritually by the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are worthy, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for what you did for us. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.